The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. What are the front edges of coercion uh, that we might spot at a distance and maybe deal with without being too far into a relationship? I'm joined in studio by the CEO of Women's Aid, Sarah Benson, and by Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College in Dublin and Consultant Psychiatrist at Tala University Hospital, Brendan Kelly. Good morning and welcome. Sarah, uh, first of all, um, do you think you can spot early? Well, um, good morning, Pat, and to your listeners. I think what's really important to say at the outset is that coercive control and those who perpetrate coercive and controlling behaviours do so from a position of quite insidious behaviour, manipulation and other tactics I know we'll talk about. So it can be extremely difficult if you are the person who is being subjected to coercive controlling tactics to actually realise that that is what's happening until um, quite... uh, Uh, at a point in the relationship where actually you become quite locked in. So what I want to say at the outset is if if this resonates with anybody who's listening today, there is support there. um, And I'll be giving our number just to say to reach out because it it can be extremely difficult to kind of see the wood for the trees uh, when you're in a relationship that Mm. is coercive and controlling. It is a 24-hour national free phone helpline, 1-800-341-900. So if you're impacted by our conversation, that's the number to go to 24 hours a day, 1-800-341-900. 900. Uh, Brendan, uh, first of all, there are obviously two people in these relationships, one who's the victim and one who's the perpetrator. Uh, Can you bring us into the psychology of either or both? I mean, are there people who who kind of are likely, more likely to be victims of these uh, perpetrators? And what is in the mind of the perpetrator? Is it a personality type? Well, anyone can become a victim of coercive control, uh, mainly women, but also men. There is no particular kind of person, if you like, to which this happens. Uh, so we do look to the perpetrator, and obviously the perpetrators are mostly male. Um, if you look into their backgrounds, you do find that their childhoods uh, tended to have more disruptive behaviour. And we also find that as you know, children and adolescents, there was less monitoring, less limit setting, and less by way of parental engagement in people who tend to become coercive controllers. Um, It is very difficult to spot, um, at least initially, and particularly if you are the victim. But I suppose the point that I want to make is that it is incredibly important um, that we do spot it as best as possible, though it may be in other people. The consequences can include increased anxiety, increased depression, post-traumatic stress. And of course, if there are children involved as well, it is modelling bad relationships um, for them into the future. So it can be perpetrated unless it's somehow addressed. All right. Now, uh, Sarah, some of the red flags for earlier on in the relationship, obviously, when the coercive control is uh, at its height and the the carry on is very obvious to people, you know, you can't go out, uh, you've no money, uh, you're being controlled in every aspect of, of your life. But in the early stages, what might you spot that could give rise to a suspicion that this is coming? Yeah, I mean, to Brendan's point, there are signs and we sometimes spot them in others. We sometimes spot them uh, from the outside looking at our friends or our loved ones or sometimes looking at, a, a, a you know, somebody who we know who's behaving in a coercive and controlling way. It can be quite confusing at the start because often it's masked as what we would term kind of very, what could sometimes be perceived as romantic 
uh, signs, but there's always an edge. So we there's a term called love bombing, for example. Yeah. So it's very intense, um, you know, very positive attention, but then it kind of reaches a point where you somehow feel obliged to then maybe reciprocate stronger feelings than you want. Maybe they'll say they love you sooner. Maybe they'll uh, want to spend all their time with you. Um, maybe they'll turn up uh, on occasions when you're out with your friends um, and make it seem like a, a gesture, whereas actually it, it, it can kind of see you into more of a monitoring. Exactly, yeah. So there are signs. Jealousy is a really big red flag that people don't actually think about that much because jealousy can manifest itself um, as a sign that somebody feels possessive of somebody rather than seeing them as an equal, so that you are mine as opposed to we are together. Um, and jealousy can manifest itself or be portrayed as being romantic. You know, I just can't stand to see talking to other people or I just, you know, I miss you all the time and I'm not there. Um, there's also monitoring of text messages, trying to get into somebody's private space. And if you go back to my generation, if somebody was to listen into your phone calls, mm. that would be an absolutely, you know, uh, appalling breach of your boundaries. But people wanting to see your text messages and well, look, if, you, if, if, if I'm to trust you, you know, how do mm. I know that you sent that message? So there are lines that are crossed, but they tend to be done. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, practically um, back in the day, not every house had more than one telephone, you know, so someone could listen in from the drawing room while someone else was in the hall making the phone call to the boyfriend, girlfriend. But the principle is the have. same. The principle is the same. And you would have been shocked and appalled if you heard clicking on the line and realised that your mother or your father was listening to what you were saying. Just so. So now if it's monitoring our messages, a lot of communication is through written messages now. And certainly for younger generations, that's the way that they communicate. You're still entitled to your privacy and your boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I presume they would monitor what they put on their social media. That's quite common as well. And, you know, uh, and and I think it's important to say that coercive and controlling relationships are about power and control. So we would see that people who are targeted, who are victims and survivors, often do try and end the relationship. But the fact is that if somebody has put a lot of time and effort into gaining control over somebody, their efforts won't stop when the relationship ends from the perspective of the person they victimised. That can then lead to more acute online monitoring, uh, tracking, even post-separation stalking. Yep, yep. Okay, so Brendan, how do you distinguish between someone who's absolutely mad about you and someone who's likely to be a coercive controller? Well, I mean, it, it, it can be difficult because sometimes there is a mix of things going on and the control may wax and wane. But usually the signs are, um, as Sarah says, the jealousy, but also isolating a person from their friends, from their family, a degree of monitoring, control over aspects of daily life, where someone goes, who they see, what they wear, and maybe, you know, depriving access to other support services. Um, and then I suppose verbally there's the, the you know, the put, putting a person down, intimating that they're worthless or degrading them or even intimidating or outright threats. I mean, it's astonishing how intense this can get when it builds up over time, particularly if it is coupled with periods, you know, of uh, lavishing affection and and phrasing all of this in terms of, you know, uh, love and romance and so forth. It is often more apparent to other people. And so I guess uh, the advice has to be that if you think someone is in a controlling relationship or an abusive relationship or a victim, of course, of control, it can take time for that person over a number of conversations to come to realise that. And that can be frustrating for families and friends who want to help. Now, what about the perpetrator of the course of control? Um, Do these tend to be, uh, either of you can answer this question, their first relationship or have they done it before, been dumped 
and then have a second go, maybe a third go? Um, I can come in there. I think um, a lot of it, we, we, we have a project specifically looking at younger people. It's called our Two Into You project. It's got different language and it's more targeted towards 18 plus. But what we find is that we have young people and it is their earliest relationships are coercive and controlling relationships. Now, when you're talking about minors in some cases, these are boys, for the most part, who may have been socialised to believe that this is the appropriate way to behave in a relationship. And so it's really important that there's interventions to tell them and to help them to see that actually a more equal, respectful, boundaried relationship is a healthier one. What we do know, and I know from our colleagues who run the refuges around the country, is that if this isn't checked, corrected, if someone isn't empowered or supported to see a different, more healthy way of being in a relationship, they will go on to perpetrate it again and again and again. And we would have our colleagues in refuges say that they have different women coming in over the years, but it's the same perpetrator. So, you know, education early, you know, to model better behaviour, to give young people the opportunity to see the healthy signs of of a a relationship. So these guys, I mean, they obviously do it to some uh, individual And then that individual somehow makes the great escape to a refuge or to family or whatever, and then they just find someone else. Unfortunately, that can be the case. And 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 what you can also see is escalating levels of violence. I mean, there's been some stories in the papers recently of individuals who've gone so far as to change their name by deed poll and then have gone on to perpetrate extraordinary acts of violence against their next partner. So intervention um, and modelling from the earliest age, but also we do need sanctions in some instances as well when it's gone too far. And and as uh, Brandon has rightly said, it can be extremely difficult for someone who's in a coercive controlling relationship to leave and access support because they're also being told they're stupid, they're being told they're worthless. It's called a liberty crime because it it deprives Mm. somebody of their freedom, but also their sense of self. Yeah, Uh, some of the texts coming in. uh, Why are women drawn to abusive people in the first place and why do they stay with them? Brendan? Ah, well, There's look, a lot of that, assumptions in that particular text, I have to say, um, yes, because obviously yes, you might be drawn to someone for all sorts of reasons and then only later you realise they're abusive. Yes, and, and indeed, I mean, men can be victims here as well, although the victims are overwhelmingly women. And of course, not all women are drawn to such relationships. I guess any person can simply get into a relationship pattern and a behaviour pattern. And we all find it difficult to see our own patterns. And, you know, this applies to perpetrators as well, who who, who move into these behaviour patterns that they don't always fully realise or they don't accord importance to the impact on other people. So it is it is a complex question, but we do know behaviour patterns repeat and they can be difficult to change. But in this instance, where coercive control is a criminal offence, the behaviour patterns do need to change. Mm. Now, uh, Brendan, when someone uh, has been doing this and then the relationship fails uh, because the, the victim has managed to escape from that coercive control, is the guy likely then to redouble his efforts? The next one's not going to get away. Rather than reform his behaviour, to make the person want to stay, they'll actually double down and make it worse for the next person. Well, the behaviour escalates on the part of the perpetrator hugely because you need to remember, Pat, they don't necessarily learn from the behaviour of their victim who, who, if they manage to successfully leave the relationship, they don't accord the, the victim that respect enough to learn from their behaviour, profit from the experience and reflect on what they do. Quite the opposite, in fact. It does lead to a doubling down of the behaviour, increased levels of violence over the year. And if anything, it paradoxically reinforces the pattern and makes them do more 
of what they were doing. Now, a number of questions coming in and remarks on the text screen. Please ask Sarah if she considers one parent preventing another parent from seeing their own children as coercive control. Another one, Irish law should include coercive control of children as a crime. Parents can coercively control a child. And uh, another one, my sister's divorced from her controlling husband for many years, but he's still indirectly controlling her through their children, whom he is totally poisoned against her. It's never ending. Sarah? Yeah, I think it's really important if there are, if you have a family unit that includes children and you have coercive control, the, the research is very clear that children do not escape coercive control in this environment. Um, they are very often used as tools, uh, they're weaponized to uh, target the adult who may be the, the primary uh, victim, the primary target of a course of controlling individual, but they also suffer the impacts of that. And post-separation, that is very clear. We have children being uh, used unwittingly to monitor. Uh, you know, it's, it's commonly the mother. So it's like, well, you know, when, when they're maybe seeing their, their, their parent at the weekend, it's like, well, where is she? What's she doing? Who's she seeing? Who's coming to the house? You know, things like that. Um, that puts children in an incredibly invidious position. And there are great uh, academics and uh, scholars out there like Emma Katz who've really, really been to the fore in documenting how children are absolutely central to the experience of coercive control. Yeah, they're weaponised uh, by the the perpetrator. Uh, what can you do, asks another, if you try to tell someone that they are being controlled but they don't want to listen to you and they just get annoyed with you when you happen to suggest that? I'd really like to emphasise that the helpline number you gave out earlier, which is one eight hundred three four one nine hundred is also there for friends, for colleagues, sometimes for employers, because that's a really common question. You see something wrong, you don't want to say the wrong thing. But it's also very important to know that when somebody is in a course of controlling relationship, they, you know, they, they are surviving moment to moment and they may not see that what's happening, you know, that their self-esteem has been eroded, that their, their control has mm. been eroded. Going in from a position of a lack of judgment and simply asking how are things and how are you is is a really good opener. Yeah. Um, and and there's also information on our website, including to into you around how to help a friend because just being there is really important. But you don't have to have the solutions. That's what's crucial. Brendan, that question of uh, people don't want to hear it. Yes. So if people don't want to hear the best strategy is to listen and you sit down and you have a conversation which might prove unsatisfactory but then you're around and you have another conversation and another one and another one and a moment may come where if provided you don't offer simple solutions to complex problems you're there to listen and uh, you will find over time many victims have some inkling of what's going on but they're just not ready to admit it to themselves yet because it's so complicated so messy and will cause such disruption so a conversation is something that can go on on for weeks, for months, on a number of occasions. Now, uh, there's another uh, area where someone has maybe had a number of relationships and and then they find themselves in a coercive, controlling relationship. They're being controlled by their partner, but they're at a certain age. Biology is kicking in. They've invested maybe a couple of years or more in this relationship and they know if they have to start again. You know, that's a terribly invidious position to find yourself in. Well, I think um, it's important to say that we on our helpline have supported women from 18 up into their 80s. I mean, uh, sometimes that's later relationships or sometimes those are relationships that have been going on for decades, which have become, you know, absolutely locked in. We also support women to leave those relationships if that's safe to do so. I think it's a complex proposition around kind of certain life points. What yeah. we actually find with coercive control is that 
the relationship actually is escalated and advanced very, very quickly by the perpetrator. So you will have situations of moving in together much quicker than, than the other person might have, becoming pregnant much quicker. And then it's kind of like, oh, well, we, we hadn't realised, but, you know, we're, we're going to go yeah. go with it. And that is locking in dependence. So that's a more common thing that we would see in coercive controlling relationships. All right, last words to you, Brendan. It's never too late to leave a coercive or controlling relationship. We do get constricted in our thinking cognitively and emotionally over the years, especially if locked into such a relationship. But there is never a wrong time to seek to make the right decision and sort of expand those horizons again. It is never too late for that. Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College and Consultant Psychiatrist at Tallaght University Hospital. Uh, thank you. And Sarah, your website? Uh, we've womensaid.ie and then for younger audiences uh, ie and also our national helpline can signpost to other services like the Mail Advice Line um, or the LGBT helpline as well. If okay, people need. and that number is 1-800-341-9247. Uh, Sarah Benson, thank you very much for joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.